Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two of Orion's Belt. Um, I'm Lance, and uh, today I'm joined by uh, Matthew Anderson. Um, he is an associate instructor uh, and the design at the University of Utah and a design director um, at Octothorpe Games, um, which we will all talk about a little bit later. But Matt, welcome to the show. Uh, so good to be here. Super excited. Stoked. Um, so basically how this is kind of going to go is we're just going to go through a bunch of different questions, um, gain some insight into your life, if that's okay, mm-hmm. um, and what made you uh, kind of choose to pursue a career in games. Um, that for it. sounds amazing. Sweet. Let's do exactly that. <laughs> um, awesome. So when did you originally get interested in games? Uh, that is such an interesting question because I... Like, some of my very earliest memories are of playing games. Like, so my dad did uh, a bunch of uh, kind of live music when I was a kid. So he did, like, folk and country. And I remember going to, like, venues where he was playing. And while he was playing, I would be playing, like, a centipede arcade machine or, like, Galaga or something. I remember the the thick smell of, like, cigarettes from, like, those, you know, 80s hotels. Um, So, yeah, I remember playing. I I mean, my my dad says, like, I learned to read with Dragon Warrior and Final Fantasy 1. So, yeah, games are kind of woven into my DNA a little bit. But... I, you know, interestingly enough, I didn't really think I wanted to be in games professionally for a long time. Sure. When I was in high school, I was obsessed with like physics and computer science. I was sure I was going to go into computer engineering or computer science or just straight physics. Um, wow, and yeah. Yeah, it was kind of weird. The, the game that actually interested me me in what games could do if I engage them professionally was a is an old game called Deus Ex and I'm (laughs) so good uh fantastic title I'm sure many people are familiar with the newer ones if they're not familiar with the original um but Deus Ex had a really kind of interesting uh effect on me because the plot of Deus Ex, I'm going to try hard not to spoil anything here because it's a, it should be a must-play for anybody in games, right? But the end of that game uh, leads you into a position where you have some really kind of non-obvious critical choices to make about the fate of the world past the end point of the game. And uh, kind, of, kind of some deep philosophical questions it ushers you, you know, it asks you to think about your perspective on technology and what good or what harm it does to humanity as a whole, especially in kind of an advanced dystopian cyberpunk society. And if you want to preserve that technology or accelerate it or rid it entirely. Um, and, and the interesting thing about that experience is that it made me think deeply about my own world perspectives. And in high school, you know, I was, I was taking a lot of like AP history courses. I was taking European history and American history and world history and philosophy. And in those courses, you'd spend a lot of time reading 
texts of other people's kind of worldviews. You know, you're reading Bacon, you're reading Marx, you're reading, you know, on and on and on. For sure. Um, but none of those classes ever asked me to really form my own worldview, and Deus Ex did in a potent way. It, it kind of like directly said, "What is your view of a perfect society?" And that, and I was like wow, you know, this is engaging me in a way that, like, my textbooks are not. Not to say that those weren't really valuable, but it kind of opened my eyes to what games could do and why they're valuable as kind of a, a part of our culture. So, um, anyways, too long answer to that question, but uh, oh, that's, that's kind, of, kind of my history with games. Um, and suffice to say, I, I've played them since I was very young, so they've been a constant part of just my, my activities and, and livelihood. That's awesome. No, that's great. Um, so I know when we talked kind of like personally, um, when you mm. did decide to go into games, um, you didn't really have the option to study it once you graduated high school, right? It was oh, yeah. definitely a new thing now even so back then i mean i know it was a little oh it was it was ridiculous um there there was like zero options for learning anything about games in the university uh, at a university level so i am um, i started out in computer science and i did that for about two years and i got my minor and i did really well but i kind of looked down the barrel of a final cs degree and i said you know this is it is, I feel like I can do this and it's interesting, but I just like doing this for eight to 10 hours a day and only this is not really my jam. So um, as part of the CS degree, you have to take, at the University of Utah anyway, you have to take what's called a breadth and depth requirement, which basically says, okay, CS students go out and get some culture injected into your otherwise CS-centric yeah. <laughs> universe. So so I took a couple of film courses and I really enjoyed the creative process there, especially in film production, um, which kind of required you to make a short film. And so at that time I was like, well, you know, if I'm going to utilize CS, I kind of want some more creativity in my life. And, and that's a point where games really started to accelerate as kind of something that I wanted to pursue. So I decided to do a major in film with a minor in CS, which was a really rewarding experience, but ultimately like pretty devoid of like any game centric content. Anyway, it was the closest I could achieve. I was very lucky back then because, um, so you're well familiar with the EAE program. Uh, Roger Altizer, one of the professors up there, one of the founders of the EAE program, was just starting to teach his first courses at the U, and he offered a few courses that were game-centric or kind of new media-centric. So um, I took some courses like writing from new media. Um, oh, yeah. A really good course. I took... Um, I'm trying to remember the name. It was a game development course kind of disguised in name as something else. It was like interactive media on the web or something like gotcha, that. Yeah. Uh, but it was it was a great experience. So I cobbled a few of those courses together and managed to get something called an arts and technology certificate, which was kind of the arts and technology program was what eventually evolved into EAE. Uh, but it wasn't nearly enough. So I had to do an enormous amount of learning on my own and I also learned how to light a film set which you know it's not something I do all that often but sure. I know how to do that too uh so 
Yeah, I might be off in the weeds a little bit. No, that's great. That's awesome. Maybe that answers um, the question. Yeah, I mean, for some context, so the, the, the game, it's the Bachelor of Science in Games major um, for our listeners. That started in 2018 um, yeah. during my first semester at the University of Utah. So pursuing games before then, I mean, you could do it through CS <laughs> and film, um, even in a more direct way than you did it. So that's so awesome. Oh, I never yeah. knew it was a certificate well, way I, back when. Yeah, And that's it. I should contextualize that in time, too. I mean, that was 2007, 2008. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And then I, I should say that I came back later. Uh, Roger Altizer, once again, a uh, fantastic professor, kind of keyed me into the EAE graduate program. So long right. before it was an undergraduate program, it was a graduate program. And he asked if I wanted to be in the first cohort of that. So I had a really great eye-opening, interesting graduate experience is kind of like the very first, I want to say like space test monkeys into that program. I so you were in the first cohort. Oh yeah. That's awesome, yeah. Matt. Yeah, that was good fun. Well, I, I uh, both myself and Ryan Baum, um, art professor at the University of Utah, we were in the first cohort. Um, and we worked on a game called Eerie together in that graduate program, which did pretty well for us. Yeah. Uh, PewDiePie flipped out of uh, uh, out over it, which was um, a, a little bit of a surreal experience. I knew the game, and I I knew it was um, yeah. yeah you made, but I never knew it was from your cohort. That's crazy. Yeah, that's good. I actually pitched that game way back in the day, but it's kind of weird because it like it changed so much. I mean, it was very much everybody's vision that kind of went into making the final, final eerie product. So yeah, it was fun. That's awesome. Sweet. Well, so after, um, your, your graduate experience, right. You went on to, um, pursue, what was it back then? Uh, MEAE, was it still that or, um, Oh, after my graduate experience or sorry, sorry for your graduate experience. Um, what, what, what was it? Uh, Oh, after undergrad. Sorry. Oh yeah, no. Well, so so after undergrad, that graduate experience. Um, back then, it was actually under the film department, so it was oh, a joint okay. program between uh, film and computer science. So there was no MEAE because there wasn't actually an EAE department. Right. Right. Um, so instead, it ended up being a Master of Fine Arts, um, which. I felt very lucky to get at the time because an MFA is um, kind of a, it's, it's technically a terminal degree. So um, it's not necessarily as rigorous as a PhD, but it carries that amount of weight if you want to go into teaching or something similar. So I felt um, kind of lucky to get into the program and take it at that particular time. But by the same token, there were a lot of interesting oddities to the program because it was a joint effort between two different departments rather than its own um, kind of contained experience. So For sure, yeah. I, I feel like the program was shaped in a lot of ways by concessions that had to be made to either department rather than the people who are running EAE being able to make all the per- like exact decisions they wanted in terms of how it was shaped and crafted. So I think um, today it's definitely like a more, uh, I would say, holistically viewed, streamlined, and consistently useful set of courses. Um, 
that are that can be tailored more to your specific needs where back then it was kind of more general and more film focused and cs focused in some ways rather than specifically game focused so it's evolved in some good ways yeah gotcha um okay so you go you go to college you get your your degree in um film or you get that certificate Mm -hmm. Uh, and then uh, you go on to get this MFA. And then did you do that right after your undergrad experience or was there a few years? No, I mean, so my, uh, uh, I got to contextualize a few things. Oh, so gotcha. my, I'm sorry. my undergrad experience was very bizarre because um, I went into uh, engineering and CS. Like I said, I was kind of bouncing back gotcha. and forth between those two. And during that time at the University of Utah and, and kind of everywhere, there was this game called Dance Dance Revolution, which was enormously, enormously popular, um, kind of in the early, mid and late 2000s. And I really kind of fell in love with that game. And uh, if you've ever played Dance Dance Revolution, you just buy a box, you know, that it's it's played with like a mat on the floor yep. that you like step on. So it has arrows and... But, but the mat you get is like the super cheap vinyl bath mat that like gets torn apart in like a couple of play sessions. It's virtually useless. So I got together with a couple of my engineering buddies and we decided to make like the most bomb proof dance mat you could ever imagine. So we had like 12 point uh, sheet steel on there and made oh out of God. plywood and uh bulletproof lexan covering the tiles and decals and it was it was awesome and worked out really well uh we started getting questions about it people were like where can i get one of those and we're like well you know it takes us about x hours to build i guess we could build you one for like 300 bucks sure um and then we sold a few to friends who were like well let's let's throw this platform up on a on a ddr forum and see if anybody's interested in them and oh man that train just ran away so hard like first year we were selling hundreds of units next year thousands of units and then we were talking to schools and like replacing uh whole parts of like the physical education curriculum in all of virginia and our our business for making those dance platforms and later like dance games for specialized people um was called cobalt flux and uh, at its height, it was doing maybe like, I'll say, eight million in gross revenue a year. So that's, really good. I never knew this. That's crazy. Oh, it was it, it was it was crazy because it um, was a fun experience. But it, you know, these days, like you you have to work so hard to make a business fly. And that one, I felt like I just rolled a natural twenty. Like I had to that's run it. to keep up with it, right? Um, but the interesting thing is that it as as easily as it came, it also went away. So by the time it was really rocking and rolling in 2008, almost all of our primary sales were to like schools and insurance companies and health companies. The interesting thing about DDR is a bunch of research was being done at the time that showed it like fixes osteoporosis in senior populations. It helps with like stroke rehabilitation. Um, just this super healthy activity because it engages your eyes and your ears and like all parts of your body in focused activity and coordinated activity towards a goal with exercise. Um, however, 
because all of our sales and around 2008 were institutional when the recession happened in 2008 right. all that went away almost overnight so um, in in I want to say in 2008 our gross revenue was like eight or nine million in 2009 it was half that to four and in 2010 it was half that to two and at that point we just kind of had to bankrupt the company because um, it's kind of hard to explain, but you can't like gracefully like downsize a company when it gets to a certain size, right? right? Like you have leases on warehousing, you've got inventory, you've got upkeep, you've got staff. So it's not like things neatly scale. Um, How big was the company when you were at your max in 2008? We had probably 20 employees. So were they all like your group or had you like reached out? Oh my gosh, it was all friends. Like it was That's all crazy. my, it was all DDR buddies from our DDR group. Um, it was funny up at the University of Utah for anybody listening who is at the U, I imagine some. Um, but the union building up there, if you think of where the bowling alley is, that bowling alley used to be in a slightly like different location and uh, or rather there was more space to the side of it. So it had been kind of reconstructed. So the face of it is, is in a different spot. And there were three DDR machines there right in the middle of the kind of kind of that main lobby and Every single day, there were between like 20 and 50 students sitting on the ground, watching people playing, waiting to play. So, wow. yeah, it was, it, was, it was a gigantic, cool experience um, at that time. But anyways, yeah, so a lot of the friends um, that we made through that game ended up working with us at Cobalt Flux, uh, getting stuff done. But anyways, yeah, so Cobalt Flux came and then it went. And that's what got me into the grad program because yeah. it... The recession hadn't killed Cobalt Flux. I think I just would have continued with that business probably and expanded it into other game peripherals and hardware. But since it did, I was kind of left like looking for the next big thing. Like I was a, I was a little directionless. I had my undergrad degree done, business was gone, and I was like, okay, I gotta, I've, I've gotta decide. I gotta do something next. You Where know? do you go next? So yeah. Grad degree landed perfectly in that window. The first cohort started in like 2011, so worked out really good there. That is amazing. I can't believe that's I never knew that story. That's so great. Oh, yeah, it's, oh, it's good fun. Yeah, it's so. So in terms of like small business and, and, you know, I mean, even at that size, it was still like a small business for sure. sure. I've been to the rodeo a lot over the last 20 years. It's scary to think about, but yeah. Yeah. So anyways, um, wow. once again, too long answer to your question. No, you're so good. Um, so you go through all this mm -hmm. and then now you work at OctoThorpe, but I know there was a long road before that company, or at least I know you worked at some other places before that company existed in at least in its current state. Right. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, well, it, it was odd because, um, so Cobalt Flux did some game and software development in addition to the platforms. And so by the time I was finishing my grad degree at that time, back in the day, um, to graduate, you had to have a professional internship. Like you could not get gotcha. the degree unless you had a six month internship in some professional capacity. Was this like 2013? Yeah, this this would have been 2012. Oh, okay, 2012. gotcha. So, so I got to the point where I had to do an internship and I had, I had spent so much time like running a company in the game space that I was kind of like, 
bristled at the idea of, of being just like a coffee fetcher in games yeah. again. You know, I was like, I don't, I don't need an internship in this industry, right? Um, but that said, I, I did. It, it's not so much that I um, found the idea kind of patronizing or insulting. That wasn't it at all. It's just I didn't want to spend that much time not learning things that are learn or, or having experience that I already kind of intimately knew, right. you know? So what I did do is I was like, well, okay, if I don't want to do an internship in games, uh, video games per se, what can I do an internship in that's adjacent that I'm really interested in where I can learn a lot? And the answer was board games because I of course love board games. So, um, and, and I, you know, had played Warhammer forever back in the 90s really? and Warhammer Quest and, and Magic the Gathering um, way, way back in the day at the dawn of time. 1992 <laughs> is when I got both my first Warhammer figures and Magic cards. So um, anyways, suffice to say, uh, I started applying for and looking for board game internships, and I found one with a company called Weird Miniatures, who did a miniatures game that I really liked and admired. Kind of admired, kind of a gothic horror, uh, Victorian style Weird West game called Malifaux, um, and got hired on there, and that went very very well for a couple of years. I moved to California uh, with my girlfriend, now wife, and. Uh, developed card games and tabletop RPGs and minis games and it was nice because I, I knew a lot and I felt pretty good about my design chops so I got promoted quickly from like intern directly to senior designer which was good. So yeah I was going to ask what your role was you were a designer the whole time there. Yeah exactly um, and and that was a really wonderful experience uh, and it, it was nice board games are, are so much fun uh, because Video games take a long time. They're very technically complex. The development, um, you know, it, it just if if you spend any time making a game, like you're just staring at a screen with your like computer saying screaming compiler at you over and over again. You're just like, oh, I just I just want Castlevania. Can I please want <laughs> Castlevania? Uh, with board games, you know, you can iterate fast. You can make like six products a year if they're small ones you can just get a lot done so the pace of it was really refreshing um but anyways that company decided to close its california office and consolidate to its main office in atlanta in 2014 and uh my wife and I just kind of didn't want to live in Atlanta. So we sure. decided that was a good time to kind of peace out and move back to Salt Lake. Um, and at that point, once again, uh, approached by some friends in the EAE program, a uh, great fellow named Kurt Coppersmith said, Hey, I'm teaching this class intro to video games, but my full-time job doesn't let me cover the hours. Do you want to try teaching a class? And I was like, well, hell yeah. Like, I've always wanted to do that. That sounds wonderful. Um, so move back. And, and it was nice because that provided some amount of income uh, to to kind of breach that move. Right. Yeah. And once I got here, I uh, started looking for design positions. And I found a senior design position with a company called React Games. 
And that was a, a pretty fun but hectic experience. I worked there for a couple of years and I got to work on some high-res licenses and some Smite adjacent titles and stuff like that. So uh, primarily doing systems design. So that was all about being a spreadsheet geek, which is now mm -hmm. my true passion. I, oh, I yeah. love spreadsheets. I love systems design. So um, anyways, too long answer again. No, really that's, good at those. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I mean, I'm so, learning all these stories. Yeah, um, it's good fun. Sweet. So, so you go from uh, React, mm -hmm. uh, and now you're in. Um, now, now you're back in Salt Lake City. Yeah. And so, while while you're here, um, what was the, what was that translation from there to when you eventually started working? On, you know, what? actually, before we even get to that, I'm sure. just curious. I had a, a thought. So you were talking about. Um, board games and how like their iterations are so quickly and stuff and mm -hmm. i know now you teach a, a grad cl class called paper prototyping yeah oh um, yeah. does that kind of does your experience with that do you think that helps you in that class or in, in oh absolutely yeah teach? well you know it's so surprising because i think um from a design perspective most of the things you need to know about how to make an experience engaging and fun um, and like intellectually engaging um, are, are shared across board games and video games. Sure. So if you, if you really understand how to make a great video game experience, you'll understand how to make a great board game experience and vice versa. And of course, there, there are limitations and um, specialties within each. Like if you really want to learn how to design like a great Bloodborne boss, you're not going to see that skill set mirrored to board games right. in the same way. But, but basic kind of core concepts um, like creating a, a possibility space for interesting choices and figuring out good reward cycles to keep people hooked into an activity and, and gaining skill at that particular activity um, really mirror. So paper prototyping is kind of a board game design class in disguise, um, but really it's nice because it teaches a lot of the exact same concepts that you need when you're going into thinking about how to orchestrate a video game design at scale and making sure that those concepts work before you go into like full production and start potentially wasting, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on right, design sure. materials that you want to just throw away in the end. I, I know I was at a panel during my, my first semester uh, and they were talking about, um, I think it was Breath of the Wild or maybe it was Tomb Raider actually, oh, the yeah, reboot of it. Right. And they talked about once they had the core gameplay loop like figured out, they spent like however many months on it. And once they figured out something that was fun, it was easy. Like then they, they could do all of the, the hard work or the easy work. For them. Uh, it's it, it's so funny because like yeah, just building something gets so much easier when you actually know exactly what you want to build, you know. Um, but if you're building things and then just throwing them away to try and figure out what's gonna work, um, that's that's that burns lives away. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So we um so sorry for that tangent um but uh so for octothorpe now obviously uh which we'll talk about in a little bit um mm -hmm. you work on uh some board games and uh at least recently worked on some video games but how did how did that company start well um octothorpe is really interesting and very different to cobalt flux and then octothorpe just has like a very few owners and the projects we do are 
like have a lot of contract work of freelancers. So I bring in people that have skill sets that we don't have to augment. But by design, it kind of stays small. Um, and, and that's nice because, uh, and this, this is so worth knowing, if you're interested at all in running a business, um, you, you have to know that if you start a business doing something that you love, any, any ounce of doing what you love is going to be supplanted with the job description of running a business. And running a business is its whole own circus of doing things. And so if you start a video game studio, you're not going to be making video games per se. If it gets big, you're going to be running a business, running which a business, yeah. could be akin to running a hair salon. You know, it's still, you're still like managing employees, tracking numbers, looking at kind of big picture issues and, and making sure products get advertised and on and on. So, so Octothorpe is designed to preserve for all of the people involved, the ability to stay involved at a very like low level and actually do the creative process rather than, than trying to just, just scale, uh, arbitrarily. Right. Um, so anyways, Octothorpe was born because after react, I was a little burned out working in a studio environment. Um, you know, Weird and React were both wonderful experiences, but also very stressful, taxing experiences with a lot of downsides. And I kind of just just had this epiphany, and I, I think I think it the the other partners at Octothorpe had a similar idea that you know let's let's just like try and make something work that just involves working with the people we like the absolute best and nothing else. Right. Yeah. So, so it was more about the people than anything else. It's like, well, you know, I want to, I want to work with these people and, um, then we'll figure something out past that. So we just got together, we made a business and we said like, let's figure out how to, how to make stuff. Um, and that's interesting because it's led us in a lot of meandering kind of paths. So, um, we have done contract medical simulations and we have done educational games and we've done core games and we've done VR work and we've done web work and, um, but yeah, just, just tons and tons of different, different, uh, kind of work avenues. But I think the thing is, is that we've pretty much enjoyed the process most of the way through. Um, and the company is still very flexible and that it, largely day-to-day just gets to be exactly what we want and it's nice because we finally picked up enough steam and have enough reputation that contract work and opportunities to kind of partner on creative activities come to us now so um, a lot of the hard work of just trying to get to know people and find opportunity is is uh, kind of taken care of so I don't even know if that answered your question anymore. I think no, I forgot the question. That's great. No, yeah, it was just how did it start? And you yeah. kind of said that you, you all yeah, exactly kind of got right. together. Yeah. And so, and it's, is there five people part of the company right now? How well, many people, I guess, officially work for Octothor? So, so there were four original owners and only two of those owners are left. Um, so the original owners were myself, Al Johnstone, Jaden Holiday, and Lainey Dixon. Um, Lainey Dixon is just a fabulously talented person who 
um, was really interested in user research and user testing for games. And uh, we did a lot of wonderful work together, but I think that the scale of our operation didn't really allow her to do the scale of user research that she wanted to sure, do. Yeah. So now she is, I believe, lead user researcher over Rainbow Six Siege at Ubisoft. So Crazy she's happy. Man. She yeah. left, I think, right before I met you guys in 2018. I think so, yeah. 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 I, I met Jaden. Um, obviously, I know Al. Um, exactly. And yeah. Logan, who, uh, did you bring him on? So Logan came in later. Logan came in maybe, I want to say, two years after we started. And um, Logan Erickson, now also an owner, just was doing so such fabulous design work. And um, he kind of wanted to do a little bit of an internship with us. And, yeah, we just said, you know, he's... He's great. Let's figure out how to make him a bigger part of what's going on. So the remaining three owners are myself, Al Johnstone, and Logan. Um, and we pretty much just operate at that scale. So we, once again, we work with lots of contractors and freelancers as we need. So we'll go out and find artists for our project or we'll, projects or we'll find extra programmers or scale up and down per project. But um, we, we keep it a little fast and loose, which is nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Sweet. So I guess, I mean, so, so now we're here, we're in the present. Oh, um, made it. You still teach at the U, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but now what's, I guess this, would you call singularity, uh, the seminal work of Octothorpe? I mean, what's, what's the big thing coming oh, from man. the company? I mean, well, maybe that's too hard to answer. I don't know. Definitely. Well, it's interesting because we, we have a couple of contract projects now that are like tight, tight NDA city. So I can't gotcha. yeah, no worries. talk about them oh, totally please. yet. I'm excited to though. Um, and they, and they kind of are tangentially game related. I will say that they uh, have to deal with, uh, virtual influencers heavily if you're familiar with that with that space um, but uh, Singularity is this uh, card game physical card game that we're working on and it's been a passion project in the studio for well I want to say like six years or so oh, that's so crazy and, yeah well the interesting thing is the the very first inception of singularity was way back at weird miniatures in 2013 I pitched that to that company and they greenlit it and um, it got a lot of development done a lot of art done it looked very fundamentally different than it did now I never um, knew it got greenlit so it was oh yeah it was like in production oh it was production, in but... production big time um, but but back then it was meant to be a mobile game and a card game and they'd interface through AR properties so mm -hmm. what you do is you'd have cards on the table that were like shells like kind of mechs and then you okay. could have a character on your phone that you would be taking through like an RPG process and like the digital world. And then you could scan a mech card with your phone and it would display like the fusion of your character and the mech on your phone. And then you put your phone on top of the card and it'd be a new card in the physical game. So there was some really cool, fun ideas then. And it was meant to kind of exist in that time when toys to life games were huge. Right. So yep. 
it was you know skylanders were gigantic disney infinity were gigantic and and these kind of physical digital crossover properties were huge so singularity i mean a lot of the lore persisted from that time like there were the four factions that you're familiar with lance and but the thing is is that that project um i guess to like kind of I won't explain the whole story because that can be an hour in unto itself. <laughs> but when when Weird consolidated its Western office into Atlanta, that singularity development got canceled um, in part because, you know, I was not at the company anymore and right. a few other factors. So what happened is Octothorpe later on, when we were actually pretty flush with the resources, I uh, ended up buying all of the singularity IP out of... Uh, the owners of Weird uh, for some amount of cash, which was good. So, so I owned all that. Unfortunately, from that time, like a lot of the art and the resources were not really usable. So it was just the core idea and the lore and the narrative that I really wanted, um, and that worked out good. And since then, I mean, you know, I say it's been in development for six years. That makes it sound like it's a lot more robust than it is <laughs> i, I want to say that for most of that time it was kind of like a fun pet project you know i was like okay well we're done working let's jam on singularity for a bit just unwind um so it, it wasn't like six years of full-time production by any stretch but we've been very serious about it over the last i want to say year and a half two years um and uh, it's finally at a point where it's just about done. I mean, certain parts of it are still need a lot of focus and work. Program art is <laughs> just a nightmare. But um, aside from that, uh, the design, I would say, is done-ish. 99.7%. Like, sure, yeah. Every once in a while, we'll be playing and we'll be like, oh my gosh, does that number need to come down by one? not entirely sure let's bump it down by one and play another dozen games and see how that feels so <laughs> yeah so that's good so i'm really looking forward to it so the, the unique thing about singularities is the very first ip from octothorpe that we own and we've developed entirely from stem to stern internally yeah, yeah internally and um, we've had other games that we have developed that we have owned the IP for, but they've always been kind of in partner with a client who's funding it to some extent, or, you know, we did uh, uh, the Sherlock Holmes game partnered with the Department of Education and funded by them. So, uh, yeah, so Singularity is very fun for that particular reason. Um, but it's interesting because... Uh, at this point, as, as done as it is, we're actually, like everybody else, I mean, not a new story, a little bit held hostage by COVID. So manufacturing is complicated now. Um, the usual avenues for a competitive card game for popularity, you know, mm -hmm. uh, good old, oh, why am I forgetting the acronym? Uh, for a local friendly game, local family game store, LGFS, local game family friendly. I can't remember. <laughs> uh, but anyways, you know, board game hobby stores are largely shut down or operating at half capacity. So, um, so this is like, while the product's done, we kind of have to hold off because it's just not necessarily a smart time to launch it. So, but that said, 
Lance, glad you're on board. That is not stopping us at all because we are swinging right into making amazing expansion content. So Absolutely, even though yeah. the core game is not out, we are already uh, looking forward in a major way and, and getting kind of the next wave of stuff complete. So there will be a lot done there by the time we do introduce it to the world. Sweet. Well, thank you so much for kind of like going through your, I mean, your career as of yet. I mean, I'm sure there's like hours of content oh yeah in, in well, Matt's mind but <laughs> well that's the thing too I, I feel like this talk has been very decadent because you know I, I'd love to I'd love to have a talk that's more advice centric rather than just you know having fun autobiographizing myself at time so oh yeah. my god yeah hey we'll have you back on for one of those it'll be great oh it'll be so good um rock and roll but uh in that same avenue I actually did have um a, a few final questions that do uh, involve the, the advice realm oh so like, what, yeah, what advice would you give somebody i mean not everyone can you know capitalize on the the dance dance revolution craze yeah, oh, yeah. Um, and stuff of the sort but somebody um either in college or just out of college what what what's something they can do to at least get themselves in the industry Oh, that's interesting. Well, I, I think that depends a lot on what field you want to go into. Sure. Because I think that strategy for an artist is very different than the strategy for a designer. Um, but what I would say is that if you're... A good idea for everyone going into games is to actually make a game on your own time with your own effort outside of university, uh, your university program. Because the interesting thing about um, development classes, so I, I'm speaking specifically to like university students here, right? For sure. But if you go into a development class, like some things are under your control. Uh, I definitely think the amount that you learn and the amount that you grow is under your control, but the ultimately like the quality of the end product that you put out with a team is not really under your control. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, that's going to be your experience going into industry for sure. You know, I mean, if you're working in the industry, you might work for three years on a title that gets canceled, you know, that's right. just, it's just another day at the farm. Right. Um, but it's a good idea to build a game outside of your classes because then you can have so much more power over the end quality of that product, right? Like you can really drive and decide how that gets built. And it's a nice way of hedging your bets. So um, for instance, when I was in the grad program, I was working on Erie with my grad team. And I was also making a uh, mobile game called Catball Eats It All with uh, uh, friends outside of college yeah. and both of those ended up doing very well for me um, almost kind of out of luck but I think the two of those helped me together to really get a foothold um, so like Catball Eats It All got an Apple staff favorite pick so for like a few weeks it was on like the front page of every iOS store on the planet Huge, um, yeah. yeah, it was really cool. Catball Eats It All has a very, very dubious um, uh, award of being the most pirated iOS title in 2011, <laughs> which is um, 
That's awesome. quite a feat. Yeah, so <laughs> we made nothing, but hopefully a lot of people are really happy. So, <laughs> so, so anyways, uh, but the reason why I'm saying that is that uh, as a designer, as an artist, as a programmer, you need, and well, I shouldn't say you need, but I would recommend having a portfolio piece that you that is up to a quality level that you have been able to control and know is your really is like your best work right um so that would be my first piece of advice make a game outside of school make sure it's excellent um and then uh past that it gets very uh, kind of area specific, but I'll give some very, very, very quick advice. I know we're probably running a little long. All good. Um, sweet. So for programmers, I mean, the nice thing about being a programmer is like your degree is your biggest piece of ammunition. I mean, people know CS degrees from reputable universities are very rigorous. So um, having an extra game as a portfolio piece or having some strong specialized knowledge like, yeah, I've done a lot of programming in the Unreal Engine um, will help you a lot. But ultimately, if you have that degree and you did well and you're familiar with game construction and game engines, you'll, you'll probably be able to land a job. It'll, it'll take some persistence. Artists, it's interesting because the degree is an opportunity to improve your portfolio, but ultimately the degree itself does not matter at all. Um, it's just all your portfolio. And the sad thing, I, I say sad because it is kind of sad, is that you like you can't hide anywhere, right? Like as, as a designer, if you're lucky enough to get hired, you can kind of like slide in and then learn on the job a little bit. Mm -hmm. With an artist, like the standard is insanely high up front and you can't, there's no way to like slide in, you know? It's like your portfolio is, is just like bearing your soul to the entire world. Sure, we talk about from yeah. like a uh, producer-centric point, um, mm -hmm. being a producer, a project manager, something like that, it's not, it's a shippable skill, but you're not shipping necessarily your skills as a product like you are for art like you're saying which is exactly brutal when it comes to stuff like that you got it so i mean the nice thing for an artist is if if you there there's no shortage of jobs for artists at all right it's all about having the skill set um and if you have if you have the skills to make art at a triple a level like the universe will be your oyster you sure. know um and I know it's it's so odd. Like even amazing illustrators, the highest paid person at Weird, for instance, was the core concept artist, and he made uh, six figures easily. That's, and he was just a freelancer, wow. but his style was so integrated with the product, and we needed him to produce stuff at such a rate that it just ended up being that way, right? Um, and, and so the trick is. And the nice thing about being an artist is that you can really be honest with yourself. You know, you can look at the work you just did and say, you know, does this look like it belongs in the latest Halo game or not? You know, and if you want to work on Halo, then the answer should be yes. And if not, then you've got to keep working. Um, and it's a lot of work to get there. So for artists, my only advice is, you know, just just don't go to bed every night until your fingers are bleeding. Basically, <laughs> you know, just, just just do a do a lot. You know, it's it's all about the time you put in. Um, and if you don't put in the time, then I really 
think it's a hard position to be in to have an art degree and not have the portfolio. So you, you don't want to be there. Like if you really want to do that, you got to make sure that you do it. Designers, um, it's all about the games you've made, right? So you need to be able to show examples of work and on games that are finished, that are fun to play. And so I think if you want to go into design, it's more important than anything else to get together with some buddies and make a game and make sure it's good. Um, and that um, is, is not necessarily a hard thing. I mean, uh, what I guess my core advice is, especially if you're making your first game, always focus on fundamentals, right? Um, everybody feels so much pressure to like innovate in an insane way or you know have some clever gameplay twist like oh my gosh this is a world where you're bringing back the color but the shadows morph dimensions and this is a four-dimensional <laughs> game and you like you don't need a bizarre hook what you want is to be able to make a platformer as good as Mega Man and if you can do that like if the jumping and shooting is fun just like you know then, the then your goal so, exactly yeah. if you think about it like think about the indie games that have done spectacular like runaway crazy hits right they're not really doing anything new they're just executing a well-loved formula at like a, an incredible next level sure. and i mean some like minecraft are exceptions to that but i mean think about like stardew valley that's just Harvest Moon with like 8x the content, right? Super Meat Boy. Super Meat Boy, good old strong classic platformer. <laughs> just feels good. Um, you think about like Hollow Knight. I mean, yeah. artistically brilliant, narratively brilliant, but at its core, it's Super Metroid, you know? So, so the thing is, is if you focus on those fundamentals, you say, I just want to make a fun platformer, you know, it, it doesn't need to um have crazy time bending mechanics or anything like that the nice thing is is if you learn those skills then you can build anything on top of them right if you know how to make a fun platformer then you can make any platformer with a twist because you've got that that core built so that's what i would i would suggest you know just focus on good strong core gameplay in a genre you love and um worry about insane innovation later um so yeah, that would be that's my advice. I have lots more advice, but you know, I could go on for hours. Maybe we gotta do a part two. <laughs> well, hey, maybe maybe we will. Yeah, um, so good. Sweet. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been amazing to hear about everything and to to kind of see the a success story that I mean I didn't even completely know. And I've full disclosure, I've known Matt for some time now. Oh yeah, it's been um, a chunk of time for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's a lot of fun. Hi, everyone. Lance here again. I hope you really enjoyed that episode with me and Matt Anderson. Uh, Matt is a close friend of mine, and he really is an amazing guy. I was surprised myself to learn a bunch of stuff from that episode that I didn't even know about him. Uh, and we've known each other a few years. I know I, th I think I say that in the episode. Um, but regardless, that was filmed a few months ago or recorded, I guess, a few months ago. So I apologize for like the really echoey nature of that. It was... Uh, Pretty, pretty jarring, but I think the content is really important um, and really inspiring, especially to me. So uh, hopefully you still enjoyed it. Connor and I are going to be back uh, for episode three this coming week. Hopefully that will be up in the next, I don't know, six days, seven days. 
And I just had to record this because in the end of that other video, I'm like, oh, we'll see you in like three months or something crazy. So just wanted to update you and we will see you next week.